This is Grounded, a podcast from Michigan Sugar Company. Grounded is intended to explore our history, the tradition that's made us great, and the ideas to drive us into the future. Grounded is hosted by Jim Ruhlman, Michigan Sugar Company Executive Vice President. And now, here's Jim Ruhlman. Welcome to Grounded. Our guest today is Mr. Jim Johnson. Mr. Johnson is a native of Tennessee and a 1976 graduate of Memphis State University. In 1977, he moved to Washington, D.C., where he served as legislative assistant to Tennessee Congressman Ed Jones until the lawmaker's retirement in 1989. During his 12 years on Capitol Hill, Jim Johnson served as majority counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives Agricultural Subcommittee, chaired by Jones. In 1989, he joined the United States Beet Sugar Association, a trade association of American beet sugar processing companies, as public affairs director. Jim was elected to its VP in 1991 and was named president of the association in 1999. On New Year's Day of 2017, Jim retired after spending 28 years with USB. Jim, welcome to Grounded. How are you? Well, thank you, Jim. I really appreciate the opportunity to connect again with the beet sugar industry, especially the growers and the factory workers and the company employees at Michigan Sugar Company. I'm doing great. I love retirement, so I do confess that I very much miss the people of the sugar industry family, and it really is a family. It always felt that way. I miss the camaraderie and the sense that I was part of a shared mission, that uh, there were goals that we worked together to achieve, and uh, I find these days I'm a little bit more of a loner, although... um, Sometimes in a foursome on a golf course, you collaborate. That's where I find that I've spent more time now uh, golfing and doing a little more travel than I could do in the previous 30 years because my schedule just didn't permit it. Sure. But I'm doing great. Good, good. Jim, one of the purposes of our podcast is kind of to remind ourselves where we came from because, one, I think that's smart, and, and two, sometimes it's just, a more comfortable place than, than thinking about the future sometimes. And, and while we always try to strive to raise the bar, so to speak, sometimes it's beneficial to just reflect back and talk to those who have been in the industry for a while and, and just kind of keep ourselves quote unquote grounded. And as I was thinking about guests to have on our podcast, you were, you were one that came to mind. You were always one of those people that we felt comfort in. We went about our way in our daily lives processing sugar and and growing sugar beets, but we always knew we had a a stable, reasonable, consistent person in Washington that that was representing us. So I thought maybe we'd take some time today and perhaps we can share maybe a little bit about your career and and how you got in when you moved to Washington and and how you got there and, and what your passion for agriculture was. As a young man growing up in Tennessee, was agriculture always part of your blood, or did that really evolve through your years with working for Congressman Jones? Well, first of all, Jim, let me say that I hope you're still around to write my obituary. <laughs> um, I, uh, you're, you're overly generous in your compliments and, and in your statements about me. I loved every minute at U.S. Beat, and... Uh, I guess in looking back, the thing that I was proud of is that I left 
under mutual terms of agreement, and never for a moment was there a negative reason or a feeling that I didn't want to be there because of the job, because the job's one of the best in all of Washington. But yeah, 40 years ago, a little over 40 years ago now, I came to Washington right out of college. I had grown up in a small town just outside of Memphis. Life has a way of being a series of coincidences. I grew up in a town of Arlington, Tennessee, and now for the last 25 years, I've made my home in Arlington, Virginia, which is where I'm speaking to you from right now. I see. Uh, who would have ever thought? Yeah. But I came to Washington, and I had been active politically in some campaigns for the congressman who represented me, my community in West Tennessee. He represented what is still known as the breadbasket of the state. At that time, the town that I lived in was 1,500 people. My grandfather was a farmer, although my father chose a different way in life. But we were surrounded by farmland, and, and of course, most of the activity in the community evolved around the cotton gin or uh, the, the cattle and hog farmers around there. I worked in a general store that was feed, seed, fertilizer, hardware for many years as I was going through high school. Mostly soybeans, cotton, corn, uh, dairy. There, there still was some dairy at the time and cattle. So I had some personal affection and, and alliance to the life and farm in rural America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, I think uh, you put your finger on the key is that when I came to work uh, for Congressman Ed Jones in Washington in 1977, that's when my fate was really sealed in terms of my alliance to farmers. Congressman Jones was a lifelong dairy farmer, in fact, a, a leader national leader in uh, forming dairy cooperatives, was uh, instrumental in forming a telephone cooperative as well as a rural electric cooperative back in the 1930s. He had gone on to be the commissioner of the state commissioner of agriculture in the, in the 1950s and was elected to Congress in 1969 and served for the next 20 years. Well, farmers, farming, farm issues were just as much a part of his blood as any other part of his DNA. He never was more comfortable than when he was leaning on a fence post talking to one of his farmer constituents back home. And there were many times that I was right there at his side absorbing just as much of that as I could. So I think it's safe to say that, that it was the man who mentored me that really instilled in me the respect and and indeed affection for farmers that I have even today in retirement. I see. Jim, as you're working for Congressman Jones on, on Capitol Hill, it sounds that, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm being a little bit presumptuous here, but it sounds like you had some interaction with different commodity groups, and, and eventually you hooked up with, um, with the sugar group. How did that transpire, and And then I guess, how did that take place? And when you transitioned from working for Congressman Jones to to working for USB? Well, I had worked for Congressman Jones on the House Agriculture Committee, where he was a senior member and chaired what I still believe was the most important and certainly most active subcommittee with jurisdiction over farm 
credit programs, including the farm credit system that we know so well today, the soil and water conservation programs, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, rural electric and telephone disaster programs, many other things. But he also was a member of the subcommittees that dealt with the other basic commodities. So as we would develop bills in our subcommittee, he was always, if you will, contributing to the commodity, the development of the dairy program or the sugar program, which he supported and didn't have a stalk of cane or a, a root of beet anywhere in West Tennessee, but he still was a faithful supporter of the sugar program because he knew when the time came that he needed to take a farm credit bill or a soil conservation program to the floor of the house, he was going to need votes from Michigan and Minnesota, and Idaho, and Louisiana, and Florida, and places like that. Mm-hmm. So he was, he really was a genius. I think that looking back on my time with him, probably the most valuable lesson I've learned simply by observation with him was how absolutely essential it is to build and nurture coalitions if you're going to get anything done. Coalition in plain language frequently simply means friendships. And Congressman Jones was a master at being a nice guy who helped his colleagues when they needed his vote on something important to them so that when their votes, when he took legislation to the floor, he could count on their votes to help him. I guess another takeaway I would recall from working with him was how important it was to hear from grassroots whenever Congress is working on a farm bill. All the fact sheets and the back scratching and the vote trading won't carry the day unless the members of Congress know that the citizens back home, and by that I mean the voters in their districts and states, understand the issues and are going to back them up when they do cast a vote. And this really is where the beet sugar industry has excelled over the past 40 years. You mentioned my association and work with other commodities. Certainly there are other commodities that have a bigger footprint, corn, wheat, soybeans, livestock, in more states, in more areas, maybe producing more in terms of uh, annual sales. But I don't think there is a commodity operating in Washington in the government affairs arena that holds a candle to the sugar industry. And I'm not just saying that because I was a part of it. I saw that when I worked on Capitol Hill, and I saw it for the nearly 30 years that I was in the industry, and it carries on to this day. And I guess another thing that I would have to say is that the supporters in Congress who are from sugar-producing districts and states really are committed. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have their heart and soul in these issues. And frequently what I've seen from the opponent of sugar policy is that their supporters will go to the floor and make a statement and cast a vote, and then they move on. And they don't think about it anymore. Frankly, they just don't have their heart in it. And our strength, I believe, always was that our champions were willing to move mountains where perhaps the people that we were 
engaged in legislative battle, just didn't have the, the generals and the troops standing behind them. I think that's very well said, Jim. So when you when you look at our industry and and you looked at transitioning to specifically sugar, what were some of the the factors that you considered in in making that jump from working for a congressman to to working for U.S. Beat? Did you see something there? Did you feel something? Did you did you recognize something that said, "I want to work with that group"? Well, first off, if if you'll forgive me for being a little trite, the real answer to your question is I was offered a job. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and I took the job. <laughs> okay. But, but more to that, in reality, Congressman Jones, of course, announced that he was retiring in 1988. He, he had made the announcement. Mm-hmm. And there were opportunities. I could have stayed on Capitol Hill, but I'd already been there by that time, 12 years or so. And and uh, while I did not know much about sugar, sugar policy, other than what I'd been informed in hearings and in the legislative process, I actually knew the sugar lobby. Okay. They were, and as I say, we had no sugar growing in Tennessee, but I knew the sugar lobbyist as well as I knew any other. And lo and behold, the man who was president of the Sugar Beet Sugar Association at that time, David Carter, invited me for lunch one day shortly after Mr. Jones had announced his retirement. And that wasn't that odd. I'd been to lunch many times with David. And he just took my breath away when he asked me if I'd like to come to work for USB Sugar. And at the time, I'll, I'll, I'll confess that I had already been offered a job with a very well-known and very effective trade association in Washington, whose jurisdiction I had actually worked on in our subcommittee. And I weighed the two and I sort of thought to myself, now, I know pretty much, at least I thought I did, I know everything about this issue because I've worked on it for the last 10 years, day and night. Or I could go to work for a sugar industry that I really don't know much about, except that I know they have good people. And and that was the thing that convinced me to, to take the job that I did. Plus, Dave Carter said, look, you still got some things going on. Serve out the time with Congressman Jones. Take a couple of weeks off and come to work. And that's what I did. And I never looked back. It was wonderful. And I went from a situation where Congressman Jones was like almost like a grandfather to his staff. We were a family. And I went exactly to the same situation in the sugar industry until the day I retired. I felt like I was surrounded by brothers and sisters, mentors, people who cared about each other, sometimes more than they cared about the eventual outcome of an issue, just to be sure that the family was taken care of. So as you, as you enter this family-friendly or a family atmosphere of U.S. beat in 1989, part of that job is, is keeping your, your ears open to, to what the issues are. In Washington, the the other part of it is listening to beet processors like Michigan Sugar, as we bring forward your or bring to you our concerns or our struggles. Can you kind of explain the dynamics of of the the position of U.S. Beet as you interacted with processors and in, in supporting our mission? Was it was it difficult to do? Was it maybe tell me about your initial meetings and, and what how you felt and what you saw when you started 
meeting with some of the executives of the U.S. beet sugar industry. Yes, of course. Well, I, I, I can't let this conversation, in particular a, a podcast with Michigan Sugar Company, go by without noting that when I entered the beet sugar industry in 1989, the senior trustee on the board of trustees of U.S. Beet was none other than Ernest Flegenheimer, the head of Michigan Sugar Company. And 28 years later, when I retired, who was the see and still is the senior trustee of U.S. Beat, but Michigan Sugar Company President Mark Flegenheimer. So I, I guess in some ways <laughs> I felt like I was bookended that I got a, a great mentor to start with. I had a great mentor to end with. And in between, I dealt with some of the elites of the sugar industry. Now, I'm not going to say that there weren't some challenges. I, I guess if there was any one goal that I set for myself, and I observed this from my predecessor, Van Olson, who retired in 1999 before I became president, the goal that I set was to never let an issue get to a point where the difference required a vote of the association on tonnage of sugar produced, which is what the bylaws provided for in that eventuality. Right. Because I knew, I knew, and it's more than evident, that if it ever came down to a splintered vote like that, that would be the association itself would be, begin to dismantle. And our strength always was that whatever differences the beet sugar industry had, and it started with conversations among processors, and then it evolved between processors with the beet sugar beet growers, and then eventually bringing in the conversation with sugarcane producers, both the mills and the farmers and the refiners. At every step of that way, whatever differences we had, we did our darndest to keep those in the boardroom and not in the newspaper or in the newsletters, or for God's sakes, not in the halls of Congress. And I think if there's any key to the success of the industry, it was that the leaders were willing to continue talking, not walk away from the issue, and to hammer out in the end some kind of a proposal that everyone felt like they had gotten their fingerprints on it and they took some stake of ownership and that there was a positive result for them. Sometimes someone may have felt they had, they got a better deal than others or a lesser deal, but at least there was always something positive. And that's what kept the coalition together. One of the tools, which uh, certainly Mark Leckenheimer is very well aware of, one of the tools of, of this sort of coalition building and nurturing is the establishment of task forces, what we came to call task forces. You could call it committees or blue ribbon panels or whatever you want to. But in our case, when we confronted issues that seemed almost insurmountable, we'd appoint a task force. Mm -hmm. And that simply meant that you had members of the industry who otherwise might feel they were simply competitors and out to vanquish the other. Instead, they sat in a room together and they started to recognize that there had to be 
a joint solution, whether it came, and some of the big ones that come to mind are the trade with Mexico. Even as far back as, as the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was originally enacted in 1993. Well, that to this day, has continued to, if you will, cause some turmoil between the U.S. and Mexico as far as sweetener trade and sugar in particular. But over the course of time, uh, with those challenges becoming uh, greater and greater, task forces were developed within the beet industry and between beet and cane, and eventually even with Mexican producers, that led to solutions. Now, some of those solutions ended up having to be litigated in court, but eventually the industries have even worked out suspension agreements that uh, today are continuing to be perfected, but are managing the trade between the two countries so that uh, both industries can survive and, and operate in a beneficial way to the idea of more open trade but not unfair trade. And that was always the goal that we entered any discussions. Other task force that I, I would mention, certainly biotech and food labeling when the GMO issue began to pick up speed. And of course here, even in the recent years, I understand that there's uh, quite a bit of activity going on now, even on the uh, natural disaster front. So there's always some issue that confronts the industry, that we chose the route of alliance building within the industry through task forces that then could branch out even to other commodities and farm groups to uh, make the coalition, the uh, blanket even bigger that covered the halls of Congress or, or USDA or U.S. Trade Representative. It, it really is a, a big exercise in compromise. I, you know, one you have to get consensus amongst the beet industry with with the executives and the farmers in, in the in the beet industry and then in addition to that telling and selling our story to the cane segment sometimes where sometimes our interests are, are just a little bit different and i just thought you always did a wonderful job in listening steering recommending suggesting to both our group at us beat and to the cane segment what our true issues were and i look back and i there had to be times where you had to think how am i going to sell this to so and so how am i going to get one of these beat processors on board where they are they they really aren't right now and i just i look back and i i recognize that you always listened you always encouraged you pointed out you know, some of the things we might stumble on. And at the end of the day, it always seemed that we, we came up with with an answer or, or a, a solution that, that we could all accept. And as I look back on your career, I, I think that was a lot of it. So when you look at the sugar industry specifically, what do you think were the most challenging times, at least in your career? I mean, there may be, yeah. one, there may be one or two of them, but as you look back at your 28 years where you served for U.S. served in U.S. beat, what years, what times were the most challenging and, and what were the instrumental factors that allowed us to overcome them? Well, when I came into the industry in 1989, and actually before that, when I began to know the industry as a congressional staffer, 
in the late 70s and into the 80s, I had observed that the coalition and farm generally and sugar industry particularly had become frayed. In fact, many of your listeners may not know that in the 1970s, there were several important pieces of farm legislation that had crashed to defeat in Congress, including a sugar act, which at that time was developed outside of the general, what we call omnibus farm bill, and was a standalone legislation. Thank goodness the industry later on changed that approach and, and now works under the tent of the general farm bill. But it wasn't always that way, and the sugar industry had really, legislatively speaking, fallen on its knees in the 70s. But the leadership, both Beat and Kane, worked together to regroup, and by the 1981 Farm Bill, which was the first Farm Act that I worked on as a member of Congress, the industry was able to reestablish a sugar program. Now, that wasn't easy because... When the bill came out of the Ag Committee to the floor of the House, it actually was defeated. The sugar section was defeated on the floor of the House. And it was only later in conference with the Senate that a compromise was hammered out. And that began what now is an unbroken chain of uh, solid sugar policy up until this day. And through the 80s and 90s, the vote margins fluctuated to some extent, but have I'll say with some pride, got to be more and more solid as the years went on. And I'm awfully proud to know that in the years now since I've been retired in the 2018 Farm Bill, the industry had such an effective lobby that they had a record-setting margin of victory in the House and didn't even have a floor vote in the Senate. The opponents didn't even want to bring the bill to a vote in the Senate. So... Um, I think I would have to say that defeat got the attention of the industry in the 70s and and, uh, on the floor of the House in 1981, and they went about strengthening the sugar coalition, working with other farm commodities, particularly the corn industry that had not been cooperative venture. There were a lot of tensions between sugar and corn in the late 70s Mm -hmm. and early 80s, but that breach is healed. And in fact, the sugar and corn industry were, as I retired out of the industry, were working uh, hand in glove on nutrition issues and particularly on the food labeling, GMO and biotech issues. So I think this also goes back to a lesson that Congressman Jones taught me by example as much as anything, is that your opponents today on this issue are simply your opponents, but they're not your enemies Because next week or next year, the next issue that you get involved in, those people that were working against you a year ago may be your teammate in the foxhole on this next issue. And I really consciously tried never to assume that a lobbyist for the candy industry or the Sweetener Users Association were my enemy. They were my adversary. I respected them. I was glad that we were able to uh, defeat their their agenda, but I never, ever felt it was personal. And at least I was able to sleep better at night, whether they were or not. And uh, I think sure. I, th- I think that that, that was something that uh, I was able to maintain because it was an attitude 
that the leaders of the uh, beet sugar industry demonstrated as well. My goodness, the people that the sugar beet farmers and representatives of the Michigan Sugar Company and, and other cooperatives, the uh, people that are opposing your legislative agenda are the very people that you're selling the sugar to. And so right. it was always understood. These are not our enemies. We just have a difference of opinion that we've got to work out in Congress or with the Secretary of Agriculture or the Secretary of Commerce or occasionally maybe even in a courtroom. But it didn't mean <laughs> that, that we were enemies by any circumstance. So true. So true. Maybe we can change gears just a little bit off of the legislative part of it and just talk about the industry specifically and through your comments I, I think I know what really made you love the industry but I might have you articulate that again it's a special group it's a special industry and I, I guess I'm looking for you to put into words why well simply put sugar industry folks whether on the farm or in the factories are some of the hardest working and most honest and compassionate people I've ever known. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, it truly is a family. And I was never embarrassed or reluctant in any way to advocate for any policy that our industry developed because these ideas were thoughtful and pragmatic. They weren't a pie in the sky or we weren't, well, we were conducting ourselves, if you will, as ladies and gentlemen. And that goes a long way in life, and it certainly goes a long way in trying to, to uh, keep an organization such as U.S. Beet Sugar thriving. I'll say that uh, when I left the organization, one of the proudest, uh, I guess, findings that I came to understand is it was really a good job. The president of, of U.S. Beet Sugar Association is a highly sought-after job in the city of Washington among the agriculture and rural groups. And this was borne out in the number of people who the board of trustees were able to interview, uh, people who, who actually wanted the job. And I'm very proud of uh, Brian Bainick, who has carried on the winning tradition. And I know that he's got a bright future for many more years in the industry. I felt like when I left, I was proud that I, I hadn't messed up left field so bad that he couldn't play in it <laughs> you, you certainly didn't mess anything up so when you when you look at that sense of family and togetherness within our group do you think that's felt by the folks in washington the legislators uh, and i guess further to the question is it how is our industry viewed and what is the perception of our industry in washington compared to maybe other commodity groups. And I, I don't really want to compare against each other, but I guess what's the general feeling of those in Washington about those in the sugar industry? Well, that it's the most prepared lobby and industry that ever comes to the governmental affairs process. Always has the facts ready. Always has the grassroots ready to meet with members of Congress and staff, both in Washington and back in the district. We kept our word and we were loyal. And to the members of the House and Senate, particularly from sugar growing states, but surprisingly, many of whom were not 
from sugar-producing states. They valued the loyalty that when they were willing to advocate on our behalf, we were there when they needed us. And I will say that that, in large measure, is a factor of the industry's willingness to operate a political action program that is second to none. In the evolution over the 30, nearly 30 years that I was at U.S. Beat, the growth of political action committees, PACs, both in number and in size, multiplied, it must have been at least tenfold. And this is simply key to getting the opportunity to make your case. Uh, if you make a foul case, no amount of political action contributions will save you the day. You've got to be telling the truth and you've got to advocate for a position that is practical, that's pragmatic, that's achievable, not something that's pie in the sky or unrealistic. But we never did that. And the proof is that a constant uh, record of, of winning. You know, just just the other day, I read, and I had it here before me, I think I, I'm going to quote from it. I read an interview with the current head of the National Confectioners Association, John Downs, whom I had the pleasure to get to know before I retired, but I never really had to butt heads with him too much, so so we mostly had a positive association. But let me tell you what he said just recently in a trade publication about the candy industry's fight to dismantle the sugar program in the 2018 Farm Bill. He said, my first Farm Bill on my watch, we didn't win. And we probably put together the best campaign and coalition we've ever had against this, but they're very formidable. They're formidable foes, the sugar industry. Probably one of the strongest interest groups in this town to take on, no question. Well, I couldn't have said it better, uh, and, uh, but I would have been bragging, and I think he was just stating facts. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. I, I will say, though, you cannot be complacent. You and others in the sugar industry, please don't, don't rest on your laurels because Big Candy, according to Mr. Downs, has promised to continue to battle the sugar program in what he now referred to as a 25-30 year plan and armed with a political action committee that has grown 20-fold in the last five years. So he expects Big Candy to step up their activities in terms of supporting congressional candidates in the lead up to the next farm bill. So I think this is something that the U.S. sugar industry really has got to pay close attention to and I'm certain it already is. But if I might suggest, this is an incentive to work even harder and to dig even deeper when it comes to supporting the uh, political action committees at the various companies so they can even more effectively lobby for the sugar farmers and processors in the years to come. So, Jim, when you, you're retired now and, and when you look back on your legacy and and you, you reflect on, on the things you've done and the people you've been surrounded f with, what are you most grateful for and what are you most proud of? Well, I guess I am most proud of the fact that when I left the sugar industry, we still had a winning record, and that continues to this day. And as I say, there, there were, I 
came to learn that the job opening that occurred when I retired was one of a, of a very coveted job in the Washington circles of the agriculture industry. And that wouldn't be the case if the industry were not so highly respected, which it is. I'm proud of the relationships that were built, the people that I knew. As I said, I, I had almost a, a perfect, if you will, guardrails with uh, one Flegenheimer at the beginning and his son at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who could have who could have asked for better leadership and guidance and frankly in many instances shoulders to cry on than uh, Ernest Flegenheimer and Mark Flegenheimer. I, I think that's well stated. And when you talk about Ernest and Mark, obviously we within the company feel the same way. I personally got to work with Ernest early on in my career, and I work for Mark now, and they are just absolutely pillars of the industry and. We, too, are very fortunate to to be surrounded by them. Jim, I think Absolutely. we're going to wrap this up. I guess in closing, I just want to say you've been a tremendous advocate for us over your 28-year career in sugar. You've always represented us with class and kindness, and we owe you a great deal of gratitude for that. I hope your retirement is as good to you as you were as good to us. So it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I hope you can rest easy knowing that you, you left us in good hands, and I hope your retirement um, is absolutely a joy for you. Well, Jim, you've done me a great honor by inviting me to participate in a podcast. I've enjoyed others that you've done, and I look forward to a, I hope, very much edited version of this <laughs> one so that, I, so that I come out looking anywhere near as good as your introduction. Thank you very much for having me today. All right. Thank you, Jim. This has been Grounded. If you'd like to hear an episode on a specific topic, please email your ideas to grounded at michigansugar.com. Thanks for listening and check back soon for another edition of Grounded. Grounded.